You're listening to the Discriminology Podcast, the podcast that arms you with the knowledge and the tools to dismantle discrimination. With me, one of your hosts, Malik Silao. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to season two of Discriminology. This is our 11th episode. If you're a new listener, be sure to circle back to our prior episodes from season one. I'm your co-host, Malik Silao. Unfortunately, my other two co-hosts, Steve Kramer and Sydney Penn, were unable to be with us today. However, I'm joined by a very special guest, Dr. Oni Blackstock. She is recognized as a thought leader and influencer in the areas of HIV and health equity. She's the founder and executive director of Health Justice, a consultancy that provides content experience for the areas of HIV, sexual health, LGBTQ health, and racial equity to public health and healthcare organizations. She is a primary care HIV doctor, and researcher who sees patients at Harlem Hospital. Dr. Blackstock recently served as the assistant commissioner for the New York City Health Department's Bureau of HIV, where she led the city's response to the HIV epidemic. She holds degrees from Harvard College, Harvard School of Medicine, Yale School of Medicine, and is passionate about achieving health equity, particularly for the most marginalized and disenfranchised communities. Dr. Blackstock, it is an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on, Malik. It's our pleasure to have you on the show. I think a great place to start. Do you mind telling us more about yourself and your research? Sure. Um, so I am, as is mentioned, I'm a primary care doctor. So I see you know, adult patients um, for everything from a cold to high blood pressure and diabetes. And I also see um, patients who are living with HIV and provide their primary care to them as well as their um, HIV care. And um, a lot of my research has focused on ways to engage um, people who may be at high risk for HIV or living with HIV in in care and how do we develop programs that can facilitate that as well as supporting people in taking um, their medication. Um, and as you know, um, HIV disproportionately impacts um, Black and brown folks, folks who are queer. Um, so you know there are just a number of different you know issues that are also that also come up as well um, when providing care for people who are living with HIV who may be at risk for HIV. Why is it that HIV disproportionately um, affects marginalized communities? Right. So um, yeah. So HIV right is a medical condition, but it also is. Um, I always think about it as like a social condition in some ways because um, it's it's really an epidemic of inequality, and I think we're seeing this also with another infectious disease, COVID nineteen. Um, but basically, you know, when people are living in poverty, when people are having challenges with employment, when mass incarceration is affecting communities, when people have poor access to health care, you know, that all can increase um, their risk of acquiring HIV because then people um, may, for instance, um, you know, not have an opportunity to go get HIV tested or their partner might not be able to get access to an HIV test, so they may not know their status and so um, inadvertently may pass the virus on um, to a to a sex partner. Um, also, for instance, in Black communities, because of the impact of mass incarceration, they're less like eligible um, partners, for instance, for women who have male partners. So, 
when that happens, women may be more likely to have relationships with men who also have other relationships going on at the same time. We call that concurrency. And so when people have multiple relationships going on at one time, that can really drive the spread of HIV and other sexually transmitted infections versus, for instance, if people were having like serial monogamous um, relationships. So there are all these um, sort of like structural forces and like larger policies, you know, for instance, you know, unemployment does the same, the same issue as well. Like women may find it hard to find a partner who has, you know, gainful employment, they may be more willing to accept certain behaviors from their partner. And so again, that also helps to drive um, HIV transmission. Um, we also know that because, for instance, for Black, um, Black men who have sex with men, they're also contending with um, homophobia. And so, for instance, people may not feel um, safe to be who they are. And so many times when behaviors have to occur behind closed doors, people it may be harder for people to have sex in a way that is is safe. And so people are sort of, because of these larger conditions, um, have to, in some ways, are, are placed at higher risk because of all the stigma uh, and the lack of access to like quality services and things like that. So there are like so many different factors, but those are just some a flavor of some of the factors that really drive HIV risk for Black and Brown communities and for queer communities. That's really interesting. And on our prior seasons, we spent a lot of time discussing how systemic factors kind of influence people's behaviors and opportunities and access to care like you were discussing. Do you mind sharing some of your professional experiences? I feel like we neglected that in our prior season. Speaking on how Black professionals such as yourself are affected in a predominantly um, white-controlled institution. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think probably any Black person who has worked in, you know, in a foreign organization that, you know, in which, um, you know, led by, you know, folks in the dominant culture will likely experience microaggressions and racism. So, yes, so definitely have experienced all of the above. Um, I guess I would just first say that, you know, even though my early education, I guess up until sixth, sixth grade was in a predominantly Black environment, um, like mainly Afro-Caribbean. I'm from um, Bed-Stuy, Crown Heights, part of Brooklyn. So, you know, mainly went to school with folks who looked like me and had similar backgrounds. Um, you know, when I went to junior high and high school, high school, for instance, I went to a school called Stuyvesant, which is um, a specialized science high school here in New York City, you know, where there were 30 Black people in my class out of 700 students. And this is like in New York City. So, um, you know, became, you know, just um, accustomed to being one of a few um, Black folk. And so, you know, as you go again, like, you know, to college, to grad school, there seems to be, you know, fewer um, and fewer Black folk. And so, you know, I would say, for instance, you know, my last job, as I mentioned, or as you mentioned in the intro, I um, led the Bureau of HIV at the New York City Health Department. And that is, you know, uh, that was a leadership role. Um, and there were few folks at the health department in New York City um, that actually looked representative of like the folks who are being, you know, most impacted by poor health outcomes. Um, so I was like one of the few um, black people and black women who was 
in a leadership role at the health department. What's challenging about that is that, um, you know, there, you know, unless you have someone who is really like looking out for you, you're pretty much on your own. Um, and so I had, you know, there were many things that happened to me in which my leadership um, was was undermined, um, and that left me feeling like really demoralized from the experience. The opportunities that I should have had in my position um, that were that were taken away from me, um, and that was not the case for my predecessor, who was a white man. And so just having to just you know navigate um, an environment where there is like very little support um, and you're kind of on your own um, is, is very challenging. And there are many reasons why I left the health department, but, um, but one of them was definitely not feeling uh, supported. Um, and I, you know, I just can't help but think it had to do with the fact that I was one of a few um, Black women in the leadership position um, at the health department. You were mentioning that, you know, in that leadership position, you were one of a few. Being one of the few women of color that have a seat at the table, do you feel an added pressure to almost represent all the Black folks that don't have that respective seat? Oh, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that's like that, that extra burden or tax that um, I think we talk about a lot of um, Black professionals having to bear um, you know, because you think, you know, for most white folk, they're, you know, when you go to, they're in a job and they're in a leadership position, they're representing themselves. But for black folk and other people of color, you know, we're often made to feel like we're representing, you know, our entire, <laughs> our entire race, racial um, group. So um, that, you know, that has its challenges. I think, you know, it makes it challenging then to be in these work environments and to really in, inhabit like your authentic self, you know, to really, you know, show up in a way that is like aligned and, and, and true to who you really are, because, you know, in many ways we try to fit, you know, expectations that the dominant culture has for, you know, how someone in a leadership position is supposed to, you know, behave or act. Um, and so I found personally, like, it incredibly exhausting. <laughs> like, I felt like I had to really, like, just, you know, when, you know, even thinking about, like, responding to any questions or, you know, you know, someone, you know, asked me a question or if I had feedback, I really had to like think about how am I going to deliver this information? How could it be like construed? So it's like all this extra emotional and mental labor that we often have to do, you know, as Black folk in leadership positions, because we do have, you know, as you were saying, you know, there is this expectation often that we're not just representing it. No, that's, um, and I think all Black professionals can relate to having that pressure. I just wanted to not assume that you had the same experience, so that's why I asked. Yes, no, I totally agree. I, I think it's, you know, it's pervasive because, you know, the white supremacy culture, um, the dominant culture, you know, is pervasive and it inhabits, um, you know, I think as we talked about with prepping, like it inhabits both, you know, organizations that are led um, by white folk as well as by, by Black and other people of color as well. To that same point, as far as having to represent and deliver and probably often having to have tough conversations, are you concerned about the comfort level of the recipient of that feedback or are you do you prescribe just being forthcoming and honest about the feedback? Okay, do you mean like feedback, specific feedback related to... Specific feedback relating to racial microaggressions or racism in the workplace. Yes, yes, okay. Um, well, I think what often happens is that 
we as black people do a lot of emotional labor um, for white people to keep white people comfortable and safe. So if someone does say something that's inappropriate, um, often because we know that when white people feel uncomfortable or threatened in some way that what often happens is that we are the ones who are often the target of that potential like harm of their reaction. We often, you know, try to um, placate or may not be forthright in terms of like the impact that let's say if someone made a racist comment or microaggression, which I actually don't like, I don't really ever use that term microaggression because um, it just like minimizes because the it just sort of minimizes the impact because the impact impact is really macro, right? Like whoever's experiencing on the receiving end of the microaggression, um, you know, you've experienced them. Yeah, you know, they ruin your day or even even week. So just to say that, yeah, it can be it can be hard to like be forthright and honest when folks um, do say things that are racist or offensive. I think I was fortunate um, in my last job, just being in a leadership position. I, in some ways, felt like I had some safety in being able to give direct feedback. But there were times where you know the fact is that I'm. You know, was in a leadership position, but I was also, you know, I'm also a black person. And so when I heard people make comments, like it has like this direct, you know, impact on you. Like I have like a visceral, I've had like visceral responses. And, you know, the way that um, these isms work is that they, they do like sort of paralyze you sometimes and your ability to be able to like even come up with a coherent response because they are they are so effective and really sort of like destabilizing like the, you know, sort of the, the recipient, whoever's receiving it, like it just really throws you off. And so even though I was in a leadership position, you know, just thinking back to different instances, there were times where, you know, I was kind of like, what just happened and didn't always have, you know, the appropriate response, you know, the next day you're like, oh, I should have said X, Y, Z. And in some cases I could still do that. Um, I think, it, and especially in being in a leadership position, could like be like, this is really important for me to follow up. But I can imagine, you know, black folk who may not feel as empowered um, and may have a different role in like the work hierarchy, not feeling comfortable to um, address some of these, um, you know, racist and offensive comments or quote unquote microaggressions. It's interesting that you um, you refrain from using the term microaggressions. I feel like that's almost derived in the argument of as long as my intentions are good, I can't inflict harm. And personally, I think we as black professionals should shift that thinking to what are the results of my actions, not necessarily what were my intentions? How do you feel about that? Oh, totally. Like this whole um, intent, one thing I learned in the last few years is that like this whole framework of intent versus impact is another white supremacist construct. And so you know, often people will say, oh, no, well, I didn't mean to do that, especially when the person's in power and they're talking to someone who may be like more marginalized or disenfranchised or disempowered. And they'll say, oh, that well, that wasn't my that wasn't my intention. And what that does is it then like centers that person and their needs um, as opposed to like what the impact is on, you know, the black person or the person of color or the woman or the black woman, whoever it is. Um, and so. I, I try to avoid the intent versus impact because it doesn't really matter like what your intent was. This is the impact. And that's why it's really important actually just when, you know, in different um, racial equity trainings that I've been to, even thinking about like when people are learning about how to apologize for, 
you know, a racist offense or something like that, you know, really not talking about what your intent was, but talking about and acknowledging like what your impact was is actually the most important in repairing, um, you know, whatever damage to that relationship was done or the harm that was done. So I completely agree. I, I think, um, You'll, and you'll often hear folks who are in leadership positions or empowered um, in some way doing a lot of this intent focus um, work. But really, it's about, like, how do you impact folks and folks who, you know, don't have any power? Like, that's what's most important. To that same point, because I feel like it's always kind of in not an uphill conversation, but it's as you're saying before, it weighs on a black person to have these conversations in a, in a professional environment. So from a, a consultant standpoint, how do we transfer ownership of the problem that is racism? I feel often that in professional settings, it's either the the black team members or an assembled group of black professionals to come in and, okay, we have this problem. We're willing to acknowledge we have this problem within our our system. Fix it for us. And I think that's problematic because racism is a problem that we all we all participate in racism black people white people everyone whether whether you're damaged by it or you benefit you benefit from it so not only is it important that we engage participation in solutions from all parties but i think it's even more paramount that white americans take ownership of that problem is and have a mindset of what can i do to disrupt racism you know what i mean yeah i totally agree um i think Black people and other people of color are impacted by racism. And yes, in different positions, we can also perpetuate it. But the real issue is uh, white folks' continued investment in the construct of whiteness, um, their complicity in whiteness, the fact that this is an identity specifically constructed to advantage white people and to disadvantage Black people and other, pe- and other people of color. Um, and so it it honestly, it won't be until white folks really come to terms, you know, with um, their white identity and understanding the impact and the harm that this construct of whiteness and white supremacy culture has had on so many people. Uh, it's not until they really grapple with that, process it, work through it, that, you know, we're going to see, I think, meaningful change. So I think, you know, obviously having, you know, policy ch- changes um, are really, really important and are going to be crucial to, um, you know, working to eliminate racism. Um, But we do need, there's like individual level work that white folk need to be doing with each other, preferably um, to address their role in perpetuating this system of inequality. So it's interesting that you bring that up because I I really enjoyed reading one of the articles that you sent regarding uh, white affinity groups. Can you just explain to our listeners what exactly a white affinity group is? Right. So affinity groups are um, usually spaces where people with a shared um, racial identity um, or other identity, but, but particularly racial identity, um, come together. And so specifically for white affinity groups, it's really a chance for white folks to come together and um, really reflect on their experiences as white folk, understand their racial identities as white folk, and really work to develop anti-racist competencies so that they can work to um, 
really uh, deconstruct and um, destroy <laughs> uh, racism. So, yeah, so those, and so affinity groups are, they're not new, they've been used um, in other situations, for instance, like in many like prep schools or independent schools where there may be small numbers of black, indigenous and other people of color, like there are often affinity groups for you know, black students or Latino students or Asian students, but and these are often safe spaces um, for um, students of color to come together and really sort of talk about, you know, the challenges of being like the only um, in those environments. Um, and on the other hand, for, for white folk, the reason why it's also important for them to come together is that, you know, they're, many of them are at a different place in their understanding, um, conceptualization um, of, of racism, whereas Black folk and other people of color are often like further along. Um, and so just having sort of that discrepancy can be very challenging for, for everyone. Um, and then also, you know, people just feel more comfortable talking around people who look like them, who have similar experiences of that as, as they do. And, you know, often white folks are really uncomfortable just even saying that they're white or talking about race or racism. Um, and so just having those those groups can provide a quote unquote um, safe space or we say brave space for folks to uh, really talk about these issues that they may be gra grappling with, like the shame, anger, guilt that they might have regarding their complicity in um, perpetuating racism. Malcolm X is also a proponent of, I don't know if he coined the term affinity group, but, you know, earlier in his life, he wasn't always as welcoming of allyship outside mm -hmm. of the Black community. Mm -hmm. And later in his life, he, you know, when he was more open to it, he still was adamant about separate work. Black people should work on the black community and white allies that feel that, you know, that racism is bad and doesn't have a place in our nation should be working on other white people. So I always found that interesting that it kind of appeared in modern day consulting because uh, he kind of has an unfair bad rap. But I wanted to ask you, do you find these affinity groups to be effective in a professional environment? Yeah, at the New York City Health Department, uh, there has been like a great deal of work around uh, affinity groups um, and implementing them. And overall, I think the experience has been um, overwhelmingly positive for folks. Um, you know, at least in the Bureau of HIV where we work, where I worked, uh, there was a um, a white facilitator actually that I met when I was, when I had my team do the People's Institute for Survival and Beyond Undoing Racism workshop, which is like a, they've been around for like for decades um, and they're community organizers who do a lot of anti-racism work. But anyway, we I had my leadership team do the training with the People's Institute. And one of the facilitators was um, this white woman because they always have a facilitator who's black, a facilitator who's white and native facilitators who's Latino or Asian. Um, and the white facilitator was amazing. Um, she called herself a anti-racist racist because you know part of the training there is that because white folk are sort of complicit in the system of whiteness or the construct of whiteness they are inherently racist because they they benefit from it so anyway we had this a really amazing facilitator come in and work with some of our staff to train them to lead um, the affinity group at least in our bureau of hiv but just to say that um, you know often people don't need training. It can just be white folk getting together and, and talking and really like in earnest, you know, 
trying to figure out, you know, what they what they need to do, really understanding the way that whiteness exists and how it's perpetuated and how it harms and how it operates. Um, and this can be done in, you know, work environments. It could be done, you know, if people have a group of friends, they want to get together. Um, so you don't need to have someone who's like really skilled at anti-racist work. You just need folks who are really um, committed um, to developing anti-racist competency. That's great to hear because a, a lot of corporations, whether it's performative or whether it's genuine, are really um, taking on the challenge of addressing racism within the organization. So it's it's good to have this feedback of what's been done professionally and what works professionally. So I want to know if you share this sentiment. It's very hard to speak with white people regarding their whiteness and racism because, I mean, it was a little ambiguous now, but I would say before um, the last presidential administration, there was a good bad binary in terms of racism. Like if you are a good person, you can't be racist. Only racists are only bad people. You know what I mean? They're only people that are on the street overtly shouting profanity and supremacy and, and all these other um, constructs. But do you find that to be the case in your training when you, when you take part in these events and how do you circumvent that you can be a good person and also uphold racism at the same time? Right. Um, so that's a, a really good question. Um, right. Cause I think, I think the challenge is that uh, the dominant culture that we're living in in the United States or otherwise known as white supremacy culture, um, the idea of like individualism is really important. And so, you know, so, and we see this based on like black folk, you know, are living in poverty and have high rates of X, Y, Z. That's often attributed to like individual moral failings of a group like so you know the reason why black people are living in poverty is because black people are lazy or like uh, black people don't want to work or whatever it is um and so that's very that whole like type of attribution is very characteristic of white supremacy culture and so the flip side also is that then they're also good people so then the and for instance the reason why white people you know do well and have all the resources they have is because they've they've worked really hard for them and so basically when you know the emphasis is on the individual as opposed to the system it's very easy to say they're good people and they're bad people so we see this a lot with when policing is discussed um we see folks saying oh no but they're good cops um, and they're just some bad cops and bad apples as opposed to like understanding that the system of policing is inherently um, problematic. Yeah. So, and so just to your question, like, yeah, so people, you know, often, I think fortunately at the health department, we, you know, because talk about racism, anti-racism has been something that has been going on since 2016 when um, our, our commissioner at the time, Dr. Mary Bassett introduced a race to justice initiative, which is like an agency wide initiative about recognizing the influence of, racism on health outcomes. So like, people are sort of more facile and familiar with the language, but still, like, but yes, people still would, could say like, oh no, but I'm a really nice person. Um, but the whole thing is if you're, it's sort of like, if you're not doing something, if you're not actively anti-racist, then the other part of it is you're, it's racist, you're being complicit in a racist system. So you can be a good person, but if you are not working to you know interrogate yourself or interrogate others for instance when they're making racist comments or interrogate the power structure that might exist at you know your job then you're not really you're not 
you're not contributing. Um, and so, yeah, so it's very often that we see people say, oh, no, but I'm a good person. But then it's like, are you doing all these other things to dismantle racism? And the answer is usually always no. I find it very difficult to drive that introspection. I usually, when I have conversations um, about systemic racism, I usually try to start with, you know, speaking on myself because it's easier to critique yourself than it is to critique someone else, obviously. So I find, I think of myself as a good person, but I'm also, I also see society through my particular lens. Like, yes, I'm a black male, but I'm also a male. I'm also heterosexual. So with that being said, through my lens, I can definitely, I definitely have patterns of upholding patriarchy. I've definitely probably had patterns of upholding homophobia and you can go on and on down the list. Now, mm-hmm. That can happen simultaneous to me also being impressed, and that can also happen simultaneous to me being a good person. So it's it's just um, I always find it fascinating how we compartmentalize things, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's, it's it can be challenging, you know. And, you know, as, as individuals, many of us hold both marginalized and disprivileged identities, and we also hold identities that are privileged. Like so, for myself, you know, I have you know, formal education, I have, um, you know, I'm pretty healthy, I'm, I'm not disabled, um, you know, so I have those identities. And so I try to be particularly aware of when, you know, ableism or um, classism, whatever it is, is coming up. Um, and I'm really, I try to be really deliberate to learn more about those areas you know, in which I do hold a, a, a privileged identity so that I'm not like, you know, recapitulating or like repeating like, you know, you know, acts of like ableism or classism or whatever it is. Um, yeah. So just trying to be really like self-reflective um, about how these isms and phobias like may manifest in you in your everyday. Um, so I think part of it is really, it's, it's really this, all of this work um, you know, I think we're talking about racism in particular, but all of it is long-term, it's like daily work we have to do because every day we're confronting these different systems, right? And so we have to then be working like pretty much 24-7 really to counter, to counter, you know, if we're impacted by a system, you know, then it's like practicing that self-care and community care and all of that stuff. Um, but if we're also privileged by a system, then it's figuring out, like, how do we rule um, in, in dismantling that system in our everyday? So from a consulting standpoint, how do you convey that? I, I know we're particularly talking about racism dominantly, but all these other um, forms of oppression fall under systemic oppression. How do we convey that, for example, racism is a socialized thing? It's not like because people will often come to the events like, oh, I'm not racist. I'm not this. And it's literally impossible to not be a part of that system. Like we are all born into this system that that is racism and, and oppression. So I think understanding that is almost liberating in a sense because it it kind of leaves behind that that I that principle of individualism. It's just like, wow, I am inherently predisposed to upholding certain patterns. So now I can work on these patterns without being seen as a bad person. Um, have you found a way to circumvent that in your um, consulting? Um, so I, I think there are like different, I think, strategies. Um, I, for instance, I'm just thinking about, for instance, um, 
at least within when I do like presentations, I'm primarily presenting to um, healthcare organizations, but even just thinking about, for instance, like, you know, how, you know, the patient sitting in front of you is affected by these different systems. So there's a, there's like a whole school of, um, you know, we've heard about cultural competency and cultural humility. And now there's something called structural competency, where it's really understanding, like, what are the policies, the systems that really affect, you know, that patient sitting in front of you. And so, you know, so just sometimes really understanding, even just having one, one sort of vignette that is, like, illustrative of, like, the different ways in which a system might impact someone. So, for instance, like, I, I think this is probably most easy when we think about, like, incar mass incarceration. and we look at the way that they're different, that the policies preferentially result in more Black people, Black men and women being incarcerated. Um, so when we look at like mandatory you know, minimums and we look at, you know, how, you know, sort of bail systems that use bail and things like that and the ways in which these like, you know, even though it's not coded you know, in these, these laws and policies, but the way that they will have a disproportionate impact and they're designed to have a disproportionate impact on black people. So, I, but I think like often using like a, a story of an individual person um, and then sort of how they are navigating um, these different systems and the way that they systems manifest as, you know, it could be, you know, being stopped, you know, like stop and frisk by the police and how having, you know, increasing interactions with just coming into contact with police because you know our many of our neighborhoods are basically police are an occupying force, just that in and of itself increases you know the likelihood that someone will then be you know engage you know have some engagement with um, the criminal legal system or might get arrested or whatever it is. So um, I often find like vignettes like can can be really helpful in sort of illustrating how these like larger systems and policies um, impact individuals and communities. I'm sure these conversations are especially difficult to have in a professional environment. Corporate is a, is a great example of that. Like I can just imagine that you would have to code so much, you know? Right. Yes, it definitely can be um, really difficult. And I think um, because of that, it's hard to have really authentic conversations um, about um, racism and then you also need to really have leadership that are invested in wanting to have meaningful change happen and in doing so are able to really create spaces uh, where these conversations can happen in a way that is authentic. Um, I think the challenge is, is that a lot of organizations are very hierarchical um, and you know, people of color in particular, Black people may be towards the bottom of the hierarchy. And so, you know, people are not um, empowered or in a position where they feel comfortable with with being honest about, um, about their experiences. Um, and so, you know, in organizations can obviously manifest and reinforce a lot of these, these systems um, of oppression, such as racism, sexism, um, which can obviously make it really, really challenging uh, to to have you know meaningful authentic discussions um, and for even for black people to just be their authentic selves I think often people talk about like this 
it's definitely E.B. Du Bois, like this dual identity or double identity um, that Black folk have to have um, sort of when they're, you know, out in the world. Um, and so that can be really an added source of sort of stress, emotional and mental labor for Black people in um, the corporate setting. I agree with you 100% in terms of the leadership having to drive it. Even if you extrapolate it to a societal level, um, most meaningful change has always been driven by governmental leaders. Um, enacting policies. Yes, coalitions from the ground up are important and that work is critical to, you know, push leaders to make decisions in favor of, of equity and diversity. But I think you need that leadership initiative. Right, exactly. Right. So no, just to say that I, I do think like so much progress is from organizing and community organizing, grassroots organizing, um, that can then influence you know, policies and, you know, folks elected to, to really support whatever causes um, community wants. The Dual Identity by W.E.D. Du Bois. Is that from the soul of Black folk? You know what? I cannot remember offhand. Um, oh, it's a double consciousness, I think it's called. It may be from the souls of Black folk or an article that he wrote where he sort of innovated uh, this term. I think you might be right. I think it's the um, Souls of Black Folk. Yeah, I only ask because we like to give our listeners extra resources to uh, look into on their own. Something you touched on previously that I wanted to talk about. Um, you mentioned being educationally privileged. You're very insightful. You've mm-hmm. gone to the top universities in the nation. Have you ever experienced, whether it be direct or indirect, colleagues being intimidated by your education level and qualifications? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that often, you know, Black folk, in order for us to even get to whatever upper echelons of whatever organization, we often have to be more qualified or usually overqualified compared to um, other applicants, which is usually the the opposite of what people or the prevailing sentiment often is that, you know, Black people, particularly those who are in leadership, might get that position because they're Black, not necessarily because um, they have, you know, the skill set or leadership skills that it takes to be in that position. You know, I do find that um, in some of my interactions that I had, um, particularly, you know, at the health department in New York City, where there weren't a lot of Black people in leadership, there were uh, staff, I think primarily, obviously white staff, who I felt uncomfortable with a Black person being in the position leading the Bureau of HIV. And, you know, some made it very clear to me. And so, you know, it was really important for me to be like very upfront about like, look, I am leading this this Bureau um, and, you know, we need to get work done. So whatever issues that you have, like need to be put to the side because we, we have a common mission here and that's advancing the work of this Bureau. Um, but I think it's like a common experience um, for Black folk in leadership to to be challenged um, by, you know, white folk and other folks of color, potentially even even potentially Black folk um, who may see, you know, their leadership um, as not being um, deserved in some way. Um, and so that's just another, just yet another um, challenge or barrier that we have to like deal with. Um, you know, being Black folk in, um, you know, in corporate America or whatever um, organization. I would imagine in a corporate environment that these reactions would have to be at least somewhat subtle, not saying that it's a, it's impossible to experience it overtly, but do you mind elaborating on that? Right. So sometimes it's like things that are a little more subtle. So um, 
I wouldn't say it was like insubordination, but just sort of like a lack of, of respect being given. Um, so, you know, certain tone being used that's like not appropriate. Um, like speaking over you? Yeah, like right, speaking over me, you know, if I, you know, give, you know, a directive that not being followed through on, um, you know, being challenged, you know, when I'm giving, you know, my opinion, you know, as someone in leadership, I'm being challenged in a way, you know, I think it's good to be challenged, um, but not, in a, but in a way that is um, dismissive and um, that is like sort of discounts what I have to say. Some of this can be like really subtle, but often others also pick up on it and you know, it, it's, you know, it doesn't have to do with like, this is this individual, like, you know, that's their thing and how they operate. It's, you know, often like we've never seen that person behave like that before. That's interesting. And it just so happens that they're doing that with me, um, a black woman in leadership. Right. Exactly. And I know we spoke about impact versus intent before, but often the perpetrator isn't even aware that they are acting in this manner. Right. Yeah. Right. So people aren't, yeah, and just because people aren't always con- like directly conscious of it, you know, doesn't mean it doesn't have like a, an impact on whoever they're treating this way. Um, yes, it has the same exact impact. Probably worse because it's not acknowledged. When we get into the intention conversation, it takes the attention away from the person who is damaged and puts the attention back on the individual who initiated the harm. Right, and it, and what often happens is, you know, usually there's some, you know, some power differential or some differential in like you know the who's being um who's aggrieved and who's doing the the sort of bad behavior and so often the person involved in the bad behavior is often part of like a privileged group so they may be white or they may be a man and often um you know the person being aggrieved is like the person who's from a more disempowered a disadvantaged group and so when folks in power tend to use like um well that wasn't my intention you know, that, again, like you were saying, it really minimizes the experience of the person who's now been really affected by what's happened. And it centers the person who's, who's, who's in power and it, um, it decenters or, you know, marginalizes the person who um, has all these other disadvantaged identities. So, you know, doing away with like the focus on intent is actually really important. And, you know, people talk about this in apologies, um, you know, apologies include you know are really about like apologizing for the impact of someone's actions not like oh i didn't intend to do that like that's irrelevant right it doesn't even matter mm-hmm. does affirmative action ever come up as far as discrediting black hires or black executives in leadership positions yeah i think uh yeah i think many people black people in leadership have experienced people you know questioning how they got there and assuming it's because they're black that they got got they got there so versus their skill set i think affirmative action is really the idea is that it's not about just because someone's black putting in them in that position it's realizing like you know what you know black people we what we bring to our our jobs and our positions the experience that we bring um and so like looking at, you know, us or our candidacy or whatever it is in a more holistic way. So I think it's like a very obviously oversimplified for people to say, oh, that person was just chosen because they're black, because that's, you know, more likely than not or never really the case. That person is was chosen for that because they had, you know, a certain skill set. Um, and if there are areas where they need to work on, that's something obviously that, you know, maybe an area that, um you know, whoever hired them is ensuring that they get support in that area. Um, but it's so, it's so important that we bring in people that just aren't like, 
cookie cutter that we have folks who can bring come in with an a, a, array of experiences. And I think because of you know our marginalization, you know as Black folk, you know, and people who have intersecting um, disadvantaged identities, we tend to actually have you know much um, more um, sort of empathic leadership styles, collaborative leadership styles, because we understand what it's like to be at the margin. So it actually is a positive for um, organizations to, to look for folks who do have, who do come from like intersecting uh, marginalized identities. Right. And I don't want to take too deep a dive into affirmative action because I believe it deserves its own podcast, but it really is frustrating whenever it comes up and black people are the primary subject of the conversation as far as unfairly benefiting off of affirmative action. If you look at the numbers, white women are the primary beneficiary of affirmative action. Those are just facts. I'm not making that up. So if we're going to have a critical discussion, let's have a critical discussion and let's base that in what's factual. To make the claim that Black people hold an advantageous position in the hiring process is just baseless. Yeah, no, I think you're totally right. There is an abundance of data to suggest that the biggest beneficiaries of affirmative action have been um, white cisgender women. Um, you know, I think about uh, the minority women-owned business um, enterprise, the certification ca- uh, c- campaign that they have here in um, in New York State um, that's supposed to, like, prioritize businesses that are owned by um, women, um, women of color, um, men of color. Um, and the biggest beneficiaries of this program are businesses owned by white women. Right. Case in point right there. I'm happy you brought up that example. I don't want to steer too far from healthcare because obviously you're you're a healthcare professional. I wanted to ask you, what are your thoughts about the ACA being in jeopardy? Right. Yeah. So the Affordable Care Act, it, or also known as Obamacare, was you know really an important piece of legislation that helped to reduce uh, inequities in health insurance coverage. Uh, for um, Black and Latino people um, as compared to white people. And we know also not only did it decrease inequities in health insurance coverage, but in states um, that expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act, we, we saw um, a mortality benefit um, as compared to those states that didn't, th- those states had excess death. Um, so we know that when you know people have health insurance that the, you know, this is has tremendous benefits in terms of um, saving people's lives, and we know that it's it has disappor- it has disproportionately benefited Black and Latino people. So the idea of you know um, eliminating the Affordable Care Act or um, or taking away certain um, aspects of it is going to be have huge impact on uh, worsening health inequities and inequities that are already um, getting worse because of the COVID pandemic because. Black and Latino people have been the ones disproportionately impacted, ones who are disproportionately losing their jobs, um, you know, losing housing. Um, and so if they lose their jobs, they're losing their health insurance often. Uh, so to have the Affordable Care Act be struck down in the middle of a pandemic is especially criminal. Um, and so, you know, I think to the extent possible, you know, many of us are doing what we can in terms of, you know, advocating for it to be uh, maintained, you know, the Affordable Care Act—it's not perfect in any way. You know, obviously, we—I the, the ideal would be healthcare for everybody, um, 
but you know, it's what we have for now. And I think we don't want to see any backward progress. Pretending that I am an individual that is solely driven by money. What would you say to someone hypothetically like me, that universal healthcare is beneficial to everyone, including myself? Well, I think there's a moral argument first off. <laughs> I know even though I know you just care about financial, but like obviously it's, you know, something like healthcare is something that um, everyone and we know in most actually all um, sort of similar wealthy countries as the United States, people have access, uh, everyone has access to healthcare, not just people who have, you know, the resources to have it. Um, and then the fact is that, you know, when people do not have, are not able to take care of themselves, um, you know, are not able to access care, um, not able to access preventive care or primary care, that that actually ends up um, incurring a cost actually for everyone. So when people go to the hospital and they get care, they don't have insurance, there's no one paying for it, that's considered an uncompensated care. And those costs get passed along eventually to you know, health insurance plans, um, which then can raise their, their premiums, um, which makes you know, healthcare much even more out of reach um, um, for people and you know, increases also costs for um, also the insurance plan as well. So, yeah, so it's it's just like a moral imperative, but also in the end, there is the potential for actually reducing costs because people are able to receive preventive care, so that they, when they actually go go to get care, they're not they don't have such advanced disease that's going to require um, a substantial amount of resources from the healthcare system. Um, so it's sort of like investing in the front end, so that there are, is a reduction in you know all costs um, at the end of the day. Aren't we also, as a nation, um, one of the highest countries globally in terms of healthcare spending and one of the worst in terms of healthcare outcomes? Yes, I do believe that, yeah, we're among the, the I think we are among the highest spenders, if not the highest in terms of um, spending on healthcare. And then just in terms of, right, seeing the results of that, we, are, we have some of the worst um, indicators for health. So you pretty much explained why universal health care is beneficial for everyone and not just the individuals receiving coverage. If that's the case, why is there such vehement opposition to a single-payer system? My theory is that it's due to how important individualism is to our culture, but I would like to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think a culture of individualism, culture, a culture of capitalism, because you know, folks who, you know, who are running these various insurance plans and making various, you know, devices and whatever it is. I mean, they're, you know, they're making a lot, you know, the pharmaceutical companies, Pfizer's, you know, all these companies are making a great deal of money, whereas in other countries, much of this would be funded. Well, in all you have public-private partnerships. Um, so, yes, I, I'm trying to remember your original question, but yeah, yeah, I think um, it's, it's in the best interest of everyone to ensure that all folks have health care. Points like you just made, I think, drive a lot of mistrust, especially among Black people. I'll say this speaking from my own anecdotal experience. Um, I don't have any research to back this sentiment, but a lot of Black people I know have a general mistrust um, going to the doctor and receiving health care. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think in response to like how people are treated, Black people are treated on a daily basis in this country, and then also... Um, sort of because of historic um, abuses that we know within the med medical um, 
arena, as well as outside the medical arena, like there is um, a mistrust that is a, a reaction to, you know, the way that folks have been treated are being treated. Um, that results in a mistrust um, of the system. Yes. I think I was more so wondering whether a single payer system would solve some of the mistrust we have. Yeah, right, right. So, um, well, I think the issue is less about, you know, people, you know, people don't have, you know, access currently. So if people had access, that might bring more people in the system, but then you still have to deal with, um, you know, providers who um, are racist, who are, who are responsible for caring for Black people and other people of color. And so having healthcare for all or universal access is not going to necessarily change people's behaviors. And so that is what needs to needs to change because people have mistrust because, you know, they have had instances where they have gone to certain hospitals and been treated a certain way, or um, they do worry, could this medication or vaccine cause me to die or affect my productive health or whatever it is? Like they, people have um, experiences, both, you know, personal and vicarious that, um, you know, concern them about the treatment that they're going to receive. What are some potential solutions to this, if there are any? Yeah, and so potential solutions are, um, you know, what's really important is for providers, to, healthcare providers, to understand that people have, you know, these experiences, have historical and present-day experiences of, of racism um, inside, outside the healthcare system that um, have affected their their trust. And so part of it is also like having providers talk to patients, understand like, you know, saying things like, you know, I've had other patients who've experienced racism who haven't been treated well. Like, would you like to share with me what your experiences have been, you know, what your concerns are and to, to, to validate, to acknowledge, affirm, um, you know, people's past experiences or current experiences. And then also to, um, you know, have very open-ended you know, discussion with them about, you know, ways, if there's any information that they can provide or way that the person you've treated that could improve the level of trust that they have. It sounds like something that should be incorporated in the education as far as becoming a healthcare provider. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we, yeah, healthcare providers should be aware of, you know, the root causes of medical mistrust, but and should also know how to um, address mistrust um, with their um, patients. One of the last questions I want to ask you, um, staying on the topic of a single-payer system, uh, when we think of resistance to this legislation, we think of the top 1% and super wealthy Americans. But in reality, there are plenty of middle-class and lower-class Americans that are opposed to the thought of a single-payer system. And it always perplexed me because these are policies that would directly benefit this population. Do you have any insights on that? Um, again, it may have to do with the, the individualism like uh, aspect of the dominant culture here in the United States where I think people feel like you basically should work for whatever you get. Um, and so a lot of people think that they've worked hard for what they have. They don't realize that they've been the beneficiaries of you know policies that have benefited certain groups versus other groups. Um, and so I think if people really understood like how how they too would benefit, um, I think that might help. But you know, but at the same time, right? Exactly. That's literally my entire point. Um, I understand from a beneficiary aspect of it, uh, like understanding how it helps. But 
it's support of policies that sometimes directly harm middle and lower class Americans. That's what really confuses me. Um, but I, I guess it's the lack of understanding, like you were saying before. I think that the, the draw of like white supremacy culture is so is such that people, white people, poor white people are willing to, um, you know, reject, you know, programs that potentially help them um, because that means that if they reject them, then no one else is going like, then that means black and Latino are, people aren't going to benefit from them. So people are willing to like say, this is, even though this is something that could help them, they will reject it so that other people don't have access to it because they don't want to be like aligned with those other people. And I think that concept is so timeless. But you can tie that all the way back to slavery in terms of poor white Americans supporting policies that directly harm them. I mean, convincing rural Southern farmers that slavery was a good thing was just ludicrous because it was literally undercutting their labor. So I think that's kind of been pervasive throughout American history. Yes, no, I totally agree. Yeah, I think, you know, I think we know that at some point there were like, you know, alliances around um, just like social progress among, you know, poor black people and poor white people. And the the establishment saw that as like very threatening to see poor people, um, you know, organize, mobilize, come together um, to, you know, advance priorities that were important for them. Um, and so, right, so these sort of artificial divisions were, were created in order so that we didn't, there wasn't this coalition of, of poor white folk and black folk working together. Hopefully there can be a coalition like that one day. I can see that being very powerful. But I just want to thank you for coming on to the show today. Um, you're super insightful, and I learned so much just by conversing with you. And I'm sure our listeners will feel just as enlightened by everything you have to say today that um, that I was. So thank you so much. Thanks so much, Malik. I appreciate uh, the invitation to be on your show. And to our listeners, I definitely recommend you following Dr. Oni on Twitter. Your handler is at, at Dr. Oni B. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Right. It's at D-R-O-N-I-B-E-E. Yes, definitely give that a follow because her tweets are very informative on similar subject matter, such as healthcare information, and healthcare equity. With all that said, thank you for tuning in. Hope you all enjoyed and we will catch you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to the Discriminology Podcast. Be sure to subscribe and to follow us on Instagram at Discriminology underscore podcast or on Facebook at Discriminology 3. Until next time, peace.